Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Melissa Hemsley is a cookery writer, chef and sustainability champion. She's written five cookbooks and she'll join me to talk about her latest feel good and why her passion is promoting food that nourishes our bodies, grows with the seasons and where nothing is wasted. And of course, it tastes good. Yvonne O'Mara is a psychotherapist who works with people through all stages of cancer diagnosis and is a research coordinator at UCD. She'll join me to talk through the stages of a serious health diagnosis, the psychological impact and how to support it, as well as her new project that she has co-founded, This Is Go, looking at providing a personalised path care for people in their cancer journey. And an article in The Guardian this week sparked discussion on men in their midlife realising they are lonely and have little or no close friends. Has banter been the death of real connection? I'll be discussing this with the godfather of friendship research. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, I am good this week. We had a lovely few days in centre parks. Now, it is an active break, cycling, hurtling down water slides and ziplining across the lake, but... I like that return to childlike fun, which I think we tend to forget as an adult. And it is family time that you can be truly present for. We did aim to put the phones away, but the irony was that you need them everywhere. The park is cashless. We needed them to check our itinerary for the activities we'd booked and even to take part in the family table quiz. But look, it was good, wholesome fun, time in the woods, and it was a really good reset I always think it's actually nice to arrive somewhere and not have to drive your car for a few days. I think driving around the place takes up quite a lot of mental load. And I hosted an online health seminar this week on mindfulness and I was joined by mental health promotion expert Fergus Marr and health psychologist Nisha Patel. And I wanted to give you some of the take homes they gave us as I was as much of a student as a host. They were talking about how many of us assume that we have to sit down and meditate for long periods of time. And yes, meditation is a mindful practice. It can be very overwhelming, though. And they said, look, it's always better to start small. So if you're going to meditate, just start with a minute just sitting. Your wandering mind is very normal. You just bring it back. Feel your body, your breath. Because at the moment in life, we're always on and we have thousands of thoughts a day, which is all very normal. But often we're stuck either ruminating on the past, even what we may have done and said yesterday or in the last hour and thinking about what we still have to do on our to-do list. And it's better to try and be in the present moment. It helps to reduce stress and sometimes our thoughts aren't helpful. They can be negative and self-critical and that really brings us down. So what they were suggesting was starting with trying to bring mindfulness into your everyday tasks, away from meditation. So things you already do on a daily basis. So when brushing your teeth, just stand there for the two minutes and really be there, feeling the sensation, tasting the toothpaste, being in the moment. I mean, even that sounds ridiculous, but why aren't we doing that? Why are we pacing around our house, half making the bed with the toothbrush on the go? The shower is another spot where you can really stand and just feel the water, bring your mind back to the shower. It's a muscle to start flexing, a practice to repeat consistently without any judgment. Remember, you're doing this to help yourself and be good to yourself. But over time, you begin to build the skill of observing yourself and observing your thoughts. Now, 
this can be a hard one to get your head around, but they were saying you're not your thoughts and we give them too much power. So the more we become an observer in our life and really get in the moment, the more we can control the more stressful situations that life can send our way. So the more you keep practising it, maybe the next time you run into, say, a line of traffic, instead of losing it and your stress levels going through the roof, maybe you'll say, well, hang on a second. Maybe there's an accident up ahead or maybe I could just ring ahead and say I'm going to be late or maybe it was my fault. Maybe I could have been a bit more organised. That's certainly something I say to myself and I'm going to leave earlier next time. And therefore comes the calm. So look, start small, go easy and let me know how you get on. I've been getting back into waking early this week before the house, sitting, maybe writing a couple of bits down that come to me and mainly being still. So I'll keep it up because it has felt a little bit better. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, my next guest, Yvonne O'Mara, is a systemic psychotherapist and psychosocial oncologist. She assists people through the journey of cancer because along with the physical, there's also an emotional and psychological toll. And she joins me in studio now. Hello, Yvonne. Good morning, Claire. Like I said in the introduction, when you get a major health diagnosis of any kind and you're about to go on a treatment plan, that's the physical aspect. But there's so much more to it that you need support with. Absolutely. And I suppose one of the first things I would always look with with patients is where are you at in your life cycle when cancer comes into your space? So are you an 80 year old and you're about to go on a trip um, overseas and now you have to cancel that and you're more perturbed about that than the actual diagnosis itself? Or are you a mother in their 20s who um, has just had a baby and your plan was to have another baby and now cancer has scuppered that? Or are you somebody who was about to embark on retirement? Or are you somebody in the throes of the height of their career and all of a sudden you've been asked to press pause? So looking at where cancer lands in your life cycle is really, really important because that often dictates what are the losses that you're envisaging or anticipating envisaging. And then you can start to unpack it with the patient. And there is an enforced pause, isn't there? You can't continue on as normal and just slot in these appointments. Yeah, what we say is, I suppose, it's very individualised. We talk about personalised medicine when it comes to the manicular side of ourselves. But actually, from a psychosocial perspective, there's a personalised medical piece as well. And that's what... um, the Women's Health Initiative really tries to to approach, I suppose, is meeting patients at their needs at this given time. And so an enforced pause, absolutely, it invites us to um, to reassess often, to look at our lives differently. Maybe there was changes that we had been talking about or anticipating or dancing with in our minds. And then we go, OK, so now is the time to do it. And you talk about, you know, norm. What we say is that... The norm, the old norm, perhaps never, never comes back, which often people strive to. And the expectation of that is far too great. But the new norm can be equally as good, but just different. And I have heard anecdotally, perhaps for some friends who have gone through cancer, that when you get the diagnosis, you get through the treatment. And then it's only at the end of the treatment, when you hopefully get the all clear, that you begin to process what just happened to you. And you're right, there's this onus of let's get back to normal. It's all behind me now. And it's not, it's still very much embedded in in who you are. 
Absolutely. And you're right. That's actually when most people really benefit from therapy is when the treatment stops, because often their connectedness to the medical model is reduced. So often you're going, you know, the family generally see that as a great thing. Oh, she's not due back until six months or he's not due back till six months. But often the patient is oh my God, I, I, this umbilical cord, I don't want it to be cut. I want it to be constantly connected because they doubt their body. Their body has perhaps let them down or they, they have a mistrust. And so that's often when they're feeling, you know, like a duck out of water, that they're, they're you know, they're flapping away going, everybody says I should be fine. I look great, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, I don't feel so great. That's often when most people will attend um, talk therapy, Claire. Yeah. What about that mistrust then? You know, often we say, look, life is precious, but we can't go around thinking we could, you know, die at any moment or receive a diagnosis because that wouldn't be okay for our brain. So when that does hit, when that trauma does hit and there is a risk of, of losing it all, how do you work to make amends with that? Yeah, it's a really complicated um, psychological state, isn't it, that that. I suppose, depending, so often there can be a perceived um, responsibility. Perhaps you didn't do something um, that's led you to become unwell. Uh, and often people look to the stressors in their lives pre-existing the diagnosis going, oh, I was way too stressed. I didn't look after myself and this is what's happened. I think people need to be more compassionate. I think often cancer is just unlucky. Genetics, we don't know enough about it. Um, there are pathways, obviously, that we do, like BRCA and, and um, Lynch syndrome. But for the vast majority of people, they've done nothing that's caused the cancer. And the older we get, the pre- more prevalent are the chances um, that we will get a cancer in our lifetime, Claire. So I think people, first of all, need to be compassionate to themselves, to be kind to themselves and see what you can do differently going forward rather than retrospectively looking back and being self-critical. And there's lots of things, cancer or no cancer. There's a million things I could do better in my life, Claire. Uh, so uh, I don't know about you, but certainly yes. I <laughs> So I can. So um, and somebody who has been diagnosed with a cancer, it's a part of you, but it's not all of you. So it's important to keep uh, a firm hand of the person who you were before. How do you move forward, bringing all of those good qualities with you and and embarking into the future and navigating a new norm for yourself. Do you have advice for loved ones of those going through a cancer journey? Yeah, I love working with couples. I have to say, Claire, um, it's a real privilege to do so. Uh, And unfortunately, um, when I worked in the hospice, um, it was often the first time that a couple got to meet a therapist together. What we find is that often couples disengage through um, chronic illnesses because um, often the partner becomes the carer and that sexual connection, that intimacy dissolves, unfortunately, or it changes and often not to the better, to the detriment of the actual relationship. So if we bring it back a bit, I suppose what we find, for example, in gynae oncology cancers, um, it's hysterectomies are one of the most um, common procedures that a woman will have irrespective of um, age or that part of the treatment is often uh, a hysterectomy. And so there are five gynecological cancers. There's ovarian, cervical, endometrial or womb or uterine cancer as it's known as vulva and vaginal. And the first three, ovarian, um, cervical and endometrial, part of um, some people's treatment depending on their stage and grade is a hysterectomy. And we know that that has a profound impact on women psychosexually, 
physiologically um, as well as psychologically because often some of these women are satellited into um, what we call surgical induced menopause because their ovaries are removed um, as part of the surgery. And so what partners are often petrified of navigating an intimacy relationship with their partner post something like that. And so we have a website, Claire, which I know we'll we'll talk to called This Is Go, where there's loads and loads of useful advice and how you can reconnect for partners, how you can reconnect with your partner. But the most important thing is to continue to talk, to name the issue. And if you've had pre-existing relationship issues before cancer, it's really unlikely that they're going to get better as a result of cancer. They're going to re-exist. There might be a little bit of a patchwork that goes on initially that you reassess. and But often the pre-existing um, things that, that were not OK in your relationship before, they're most likely going to continue, particularly when we know that a lot of um, patients live... Um, you know, years and years with cancer. Um, so it behaves much more like a chronic disease now than something acute. And so it's really important that the couple hold hands together um, going through the, I hate the cliche of journey, but going through their lives rather than, um, you know, going in separate ways. And communication is key, absolutely key. So, and always, no matter what the issue is, it's really important to respect the patient's position. And obviously, they're only a patient in the hospital. They're your mum, your sister, your brother, you know, when they leave the, the hospital. But it's really important to respect their position when it comes to the illness. So, so maybe there's some days that they want to talk and maybe there's other days they don't want to talk at all. But just knowing your partner, knowing your significant other to gauge that really, really key and letting them know that if they don't want to talk today, you always have my ear. I have your back. There's nothing nicer. No, that's all anybody wants to hear. And as you say, it's just something that's happened. It's not who you are. Um, And it's nice to be reminded that other people around you and loved ones are still seeing that. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about this initiative then, This Is Go, because I think it's something quite special. So, Claire, if you, for example, were given a diagnosis, the chances are, it doesn't matter what diagnosis you were given, but the chances are you're going to Google it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, everyone turns to Dr. Google, even though they know they shouldn't. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, and we know that too. And um, having worked with the Irish Society of Gynecological Oncology's public and patient involvement for years and years and years, we know this is a big, a big thing. This is something that um, our patients do. And so in order to meet that need, what we found is that patients ended up in um, the Southern Hemisphere, the Northern Hemisphere, looking on websites that weren't pertinent to an Irish population, but seeking information that was accurate um, and that we could stand over. So what we have done is we've created a platform called thisisgo.ie, thisisgynaeoncology.ie. And it is a one-stop shop for, in this case, women who have been impacted by um, a gynaecological cancer. So as I mentioned, there are five and we have covered three, the cervix, the ovarian, and we're just about to launch uterine or womb or endometrial cancer on Monday. And we've also covered BRCA and Lynch syndrome because um, our women are susceptible to having uh, ovarian cancer that carry this uh, genetic mutation. And so what we have done is we have created a platform whereby somebody who is impacted by any of these cancers can go in and log on and find a one-stop shop for all of their needs. So you can say, for example, I have somebody who is diagnosed with stage 2B ovarian cancer. They can go in, create a profile, put in their age, 
put in their stage, their grade, and it will give them exactly their treatment um, because we all, there's a standardised treatment for the stage and grade and we are able to populate the platform with that. But not only does it give the clinical pathway, but it also gives all the other things clear that often there isn't time to talk to in a clinic. So psychosexual wellness, psychological wellness, like vulvovaginal um Wellness, we don't often get to talk about that, what type of moisturisers to use, what type of dilators to use, how to increase intimacy, how to increase desire, um, how to look at uh, your diet and exercise, what to expect when you go to your first consultation, what type of questions are the consultants asking and why are they asking? It literally goes from everything. And the reason it's been so successful, Claire, is because it's been embedded with patients. So at every part of the journey, it's gone back to the patients to see, okay, what have we missed? Like financial implications, implications for um, insurance, everything is covered in this platform. So it's reliable, it's accurate. And what I really love about it, it's site neutral. And so any woman in Ireland, or what we know as well, people are looking at it from overseas, but any woman in Ireland, so whether you're diagnosed in Kerry with the gynecological cancer, whether you're diagnosed in, in Donegal, often there's a perceived perception that things are better in Dublin, you know, that we're not getting the, the best treatment. And that's not the case, of course. But this platform is accessible to everybody who is able to access the internet. Because it must be so overwhelming sitting in front of a consultant, no matter how hard you try to listen Obviously, you're taking in so much new information. There are all the emotional sides to it that to then be able to go online and say, oh, yeah, that's what they said. And oh, yeah, that's what's coming up. And then even to form your questions for the next time you're in front of your consultant. Absolutely. And so what we have done is the consultants actually use it in the consultant room. So they they introduce the patient to it in the consultation and the nurse specialists. So it's very much part of the language that we're using in the in, in our sites right now. So it complements the patient. And we've also actually, so exactly, Claire, some people, some patients will never go on this as go because they don't want it. They just, they're very happy with the traditional model of showing up to the hospital. That's absolutely fine. But then we know there are other patients that literally are more expert than I am in, in, in my area because they read, they want to know knowledge, they want to know what's going on with their body and they want to know the science of it. And we have a specific part in this called Decoding the Science where it's the latest research papers, but we've broken them down to layman's terms. So if there's a change in practice from a surgical perspective or from an oncology perspective, we will have that paper, it'll be broken down, it'll demonstrate why perhaps something has now changed, whereas maybe five years ago it was different because cancer is always evolving, thankfully, so that people are living longer with it and having better quality of life as a result. And so those papers are accessible on this as go as well. So if you're so inclined to want to read and break down these scientific papers, we've it done for you. And obviously your work as a psychotherapist, you see people privately. It's not currently available on the public health system, but is the This Is Go platform available to all? Yes, absolutely. It's accessible to everybody. And I suppose what what we find, Claire, is there is therapists in all of the cancer centres. So there are psycho-oncologists and there are medical social workers that are providing a wonderful service, albeit very stretched. But also there's loads of voluntary services around the country. And we have a service directory on This Is Go that will tell somebody their local cancer centre and often their psychotherapists working there that are um, free and accessible to patients and accessible within their area, which is often really appealing and Thankfully, thanks to Zoom, I suppose therapists are more accessible now than ever um, if you're comfortable to do therapy in your own space. 
Yeah, and there is, of course, the Irish Cancer Society helpline and people can call and speak to a nurse. So there's always somebody to talk things out. And as you've said several times, communication is absolutely key. Where can people find out more? Uh, so if they log on to thisisgo.ie and as you rightly said this is an Irish Cancer Society funded initiative which we've gotten support from um, Pharma as well because it's hugely costly to, to build the platform um, so they can log on there or they can um, if they're interested in promoting change through research um, they can email isgoppi at gmail.com and all of that is on or gmail.ie all of that is on um, the website as well so um, and my email address is on on there too. So please, if you have anything that you'd like to add or you're on the platform and you think we've missed something, we'd love to hear from you. Yvonne O'Mara, thank you very, very much. My pleasure, Claire. Thank you. Now, an article in The Guardian this week read, when it comes to banter, men are in their element, but that is no foundation for lasting friendship. The writer, Max Dickens, went on to explain how when preparing to propose to his girlfriend, he realised he didn't have a best man worthy friend. Recent research by the mental health charity Movember suggests that one in three men have no close friends. Professor Robin Dunbar, head of the Social and Evolutionary Neuroscience Research Group in the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Oxford, features in the piece and is nicknamed the godfather of friendship research. He joins me on the line now. Hello, Robin. How are you? Uh, Very well, thank you. I'm a bit um, uh, terrified of being the godfather of anything, but (laughs) there we go. (laughs) What led you to research friendship? Well, I was actually mainly interested in, in how humans create community cohesion because my background is is in studying um, the social life of monkeys and apes really and um, by sort of uh, one of those odd moments in, in, in the dark of the night you suddenly think well I wonder what all this has got to tell us about humans so I got interested in in humans and you know at the end of the day friendship is kind of the beginning and the end of the processes that we use to create communities, cohesive communities. So it was sort of all rather an indirect route, but I arrived at friendship in the end. And how important is friendship for humans? Hugely so. It turns out, and this is something we've really only discovered in the last 10 or 15 years, but it turns out that the number and the quality of close friends that you have has the biggest effect on your psychological health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, of anything that your friendly neighbourhood GP usually worries about on your behalf. And I'm glad that we're moving into a world where we are beginning to break down labels and gender stereotypes, but still in a discussion on friendship, male and female are pitted against each other, with female coming out on top for true and lasting friendship. Does the research back that up? Oh my goodness, that sounds like fighting talk. (laughs) (laughs) It's easy when you're on the winning side, isn't it, to to make grand statements like that? (laughs) That's cheating. Uh, (laughs) The the answer is clearly almost everything we do and are, um, you know, there are kind of minimal differences between, between the genders, as it were, except the kind of obvious ones. Um, but the one place in a sort of psychological domain that turns out to be surprisingly different is social style and how relationships, how the social world is managed. 
And again, that's kind of something we've only become aware of really within possibly the last five years or so, five to ten years, um, that the way the social world works and the way it's sort of built up, you know, is surprisingly different between men and women. Um, it, it, women's friendships are much more personalized and directed, and it matters who you are as it were, as an individual, um, not what you are, if you like. Whereas men's friendships are much more casual and being member of a club in a generic sense is sort of much more important. Um, it, you know, you're a friend of mine because you belong to the same club as me, not because of who you are as an individual. And so anybody will do, you know, as long as they can fulfill the, the, the membership requirements. Now that club or the membership requirements may be something just like, can you lift a pint of beer <laughs> uh, 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 without spilling it on a Friday night uh, down the pub, or, you know, uh, we're all interested in going mountain climbing, or we're all interested in a particular football club. It can be almost anything. And that kind of clubby-like environment seems to be very important for men and much, much, much less important for women because women's friendships are kind of much more directed. So women have a best friend forever, a BFF as they're sometimes known, uh, um, who's often another woman, not always, but often another woman, whereas that kind of doesn't exist in men. I mean, they can point to, you know, Jimmy, yes, he's my best friend, <laughs> But really, if Jimmy wanders off to, you know, sort of Thailand for the rest of his life, you know, it's, it's not a great crisis. You know, I'll just go and substitute, you know, Pete. Yeah. And I mean, that has its pluses and, and minuses. Um, yes. There's often a lot, a lot less judgment in a male group and you can have a real mixed match of people in the one group, whereas quite often with a female group, there'll be a real shared interest that has yes. pulled them together. And yeah. something that pops up time and time again in this in this article, albeit a, a lifestyle article from the point of view of the writer Max Dickens, is the notion of toxic masculinity and that there's this onus on men to suppress feelings and emotions and not really talk on a deep level. Whereas with women, it's just par for the course that you go yes. deep with what's going on with you and that's what nets the friendship together. Yes, I think that's that's basically per perfectly correct. But I think there's there's a kind of misunderstanding here that Max uh, Dickens is kind of buying into, as it were, and, and that is that emotions make any difference at all to men's relationships. <laughs> they just don't, you know. Um, what's important in creating friendships is doing an activity together for men, whereas whereas women's relationships are built up you know, through exploring emotional issues and so on, largely through conversation. But it turns out that how much conversation men do simply has no effect at all, zero effect, on how long a, a relationship will last, whereas the amount of conversation directly affects how long a friendship will last for women. Um, and that's because kind of an emotional horizon just doesn't seem to come into the picture at all and I think it's a serious mistake trying to engineer emotional <laughs> discussions in men. It just isn't really going to work. It is the irony of the modern age, isn't it, that we've never been more connected and yet loneliness is at an yes. all-time high. So yes. what would be 
part of the solution if there even is one. Should men, women or however you identify, stop with the banter and the talk about sport or the commenting on how you're dressed and just start with how are you and really mean it? I think it, in the end, it's it's providing opportunities for people to meet as much as anything in, in what you might think of as safe and uh, places, rather than have, having to go sort of desperately searching in, in, in crowds of strangers. Um, you know, we, we build, friendships take a long time to build up. The estimate is something in the order of 200 hours of face-to-face contact is required to turn somebody who's a stranger into, well, maybe not your best friend ever, but certainly into a a good friend that you'd want to spend a lot of time with. So it's a huge investment you have to make and it's providing the context and the opportunity for that to happen. Uh, You know, normally that would happen in the kind of village context that would happen on Saturday night in the village Cayley, (laughs) in the community centre, where people would gather to meet or just you know, chatting in, in in the main street, as it were. And it's those kind of places for people to meet where you can be fairly trusting of, of, you know, the honesty of the other people there that seems to be kind of lacking, really. And I, I don't know how we solve that problem, to be honest, but it seems to me it's one of those cases where the solution is obvious, but how you create the solution is a bit baffling. Well, you've touched on a bugbear of mine, I have to say, uh, Robin, in town planning and certainly building regulations here in Ireland, certainly Dublin, that's not something that features as important and yeah. it's a huge, huge problem. Professor Robin Dunbar, godfather of friendship research, I think you should own that title. Thank you very much for coming on. It's a great pleasure. Melissa Hemsley is a self-taught chef, food columnist, best-selling cookbook author and sustainability champion. She's passionate about spreading the power of feel-good food. Her latest book is called Just That, Feel Good, and she joins me on the line now. Hello, Melissa. Hello, thank you so much for having me. So talk to me about you and food. When did this love affair first begin? Well, I think probably from my very first bite, I've got, I think my first memory is sitting in a nappy on a scratchy carpet, an army carpet, we're, we're an army family, and my mum was sort of feeding me prawns that she dipped in vinegar by hand, like a little baby bird, with a bit of white rice, and I just sort of think that was like my first moment of joy. Um, but she didn't teach me how to cook. She She's, like, like most parents, incredibly busy, so she'd be running around, there'd be pans banging and everything by the time dinner came, but she was very... She was quite keen for me or my sister to become a doctor. So we were really fed up, um, not fed up, but also quite fed up, you know, really fed on smoked mackerel, walnuts. And she would always talk about brain food and food being delicious and good for your brain. So it's sort of instilled in me from the beginning. But then, long story short, I fell into cooking for Take That. <laughs> really? When did that come about? That was, how old am I now? I'm almost 37. That was when I was 24. Now, I obviously was and am a diehard Ronan Keating fangirl. So, (laughs) you know. (laughs) You don't have to say that to us just because we're Irish. It's okay. Is this the truth, Melissa? Listen, I was very happy I was kicking for Take That, not Boyzone, because I I wouldn't have been able to cope. 
but take that such an awesome group of humans and I love their families and I just started cooking for them when they started reforming the first time and um, their brief was feel good energy boosting mood happy hearty satisfying food because they work so hard on tour and that's the same for all of us whatever our jobs are we're we're time poor we want to get our veggies in but we want them to be delicious so that's sort of my speciality and at at what point were you in your career were you writing as a food columnist at the time had you brought out a cookbook no no I mean I when I say I fell in I mean I I what a lucky break or maybe the universe was really looking out for me that day I had I I left school, sorry, mum, no medical school, and started working for an ethical uh, shoe company, this really amazing shoe company. They're called Vivo Barefoot, actually. I think they're quite popular with you guys. They're they're barefoot shoes. And, you know, we were a team of four people. We were 19, 20, 21 years of age. And it was very exciting. And then I left there after a while and started working for a group of London pubs and bars. And I was in charge of births, marriages and deaths. (laughs) In the sense that I looked after christenings, weddings and wakes. Uh, And it was a very, you know, it's a very responsible job because, you know, dealing with people's very special moments. But I would coordinate with the chefs and all of the, the bar managers. And I got really into creating lovely moods around food. And I realized that we are all so unique. But at the end of the day, what we really want is a good bowl of food and a hug. That's all we want. (laughs) And I like to think of food as medicine. I think we get lost in the world of restriction and calorie control Mm. and the focus should be way more on nourishment and enjoyment. But I think what people come down to is what you touched on earlier, being time poor. How much of an effort is it for you to eat well or do you just live and breathe good food at this stage? Well, I think if you spent 24 hours with me, you would be surprised by how little I actually cook because I'm just, I'm, we're just the same. You know, even though I cook for other people during the day or maybe cooking on TV, I do still have to make my own breakfast, lunch and dinner. What I love to do, and again, this is something I've got to thank my mother for instilling in me. She really instilled in me, you know, to never waste food, to always make a meal out of something, was was meal prep, which I think has these sort of negative connotations about being, you know, a gym goer with your lean chicken breast and your, you know, your avocado and batch prepping boring meals for weeks on end. But actually, what I like to do is, you know, once a week, normally on a Sunday afternoon when I'm getting the Sunday scaries, you know, when you're like, oh, back to work. I haven't I haven't slept enough. I haven't I haven't read enough. I haven't done enough. I just take an hour. I put on a great podcast or a soaring, you know, like classical movie soundtrack. And I just try and do an hour and I cook up a grain. I cook up a big bowl of um, big big pan of something like a a whole grain pasta or a buckwheat pasta or some lentils or chickpeas and I use it as base for the week and then I'll change it up so maybe I'll stir pesto through with some chicken one day and that lentil or maybe it's the beans and I stir in some harissa paste and I add some poached salmon on top so I really make my time in the kitchen work for me and sometimes I double batch a I mean it's very hot today but Sometimes I'll double batch a soup, a curry, uh, a bolognese, which is my, you know, um, last meal ever, perfect meal. And I'll put it in the freezer. But I always make sure I grate extra veggies in. 
and whether I have a bit of meat or I'm a really big fan of stretching good quality meat with pulses and legumes and, you know, going back to brain food and mental health and the rise in, in mental health demands on our, you know, doctors and especially for young people, you know, eating for our brain is so important. So berries and beans and eating the rainbow and oily fish and eating nuts and seeds. So I'm super passionate about that. And I love one of the lines in the book. It says, the starting place for how I feel has always been my kitchen. And we flipped it, as I said, it's become something sort of stressful and something that has to be done. And we forget it can be really, really enjoyable. You can really lose yourself into cooking and really enjoy every single plate and bowl that's put in front of you. That's it. Exactly. I mean, what is the point of of living if we're not enjoying food as pleasure as well as fuel? And, you know, by that, I don't mean every meal has to be the best meal ever. Every meal doesn't have to be gorgeous or Instagram worthy. I sometimes feel that in social media and these, you know, very competitive TV cookery shows of which there are so many and I love them. I love them. But there is often this leaning towards food being absolutely gorgeous. You know, food is judged on how it looks by the judges or the competitiveness of what what next thing can you do to make it even better? But actually, the simplest food is the most delicious. And when we go on holiday, I've just got back from Italy. I know that, you know, a beautiful tomato salad with some gorgeous crusty bread and some basil and and, uh, you know, some slow cooked aubergines is is to die for. But when we're home, we sometimes get lost in this feeling of overcomplicating it. So I definitely think whatever you're planning to do for dinner tonight, maybe think, how can I make it simpler? And, you know, your good recipe books will make life simpler for you by making and offering you simple recipes. But also think about adding in one more portion of vegetables. That is a great way to do it. And with the cost of living and with our time poorness, Always remember the freezer is your friend. So put some frozen spinach in there, your berries. You can freeze pretty much anything. And especially if you're going on holiday, you got any leftover cheese, grate it up, put it in a resellable resellable bag, put it in the freezer. Almost everything can be frozen. Avocados, bananas, you name it. And I must say, even though every dish in your book looks beautiful, of course, it's been shot and, and styled, but it looks simple and it looks achievable and you've lots of recipes sort of like you know vegetables but with eggs and then what spices to put with that to kind of Mm. freshen that up a little bit everything looks colorful everything looks doable and I think that's really important as you say and how important is it that we eat in season well you know again I'll say let's not use it let's not use eating seasonally as another thing to beat ourselves up about or worry ourselves about because I'm really aware that for lots of people it's just another thing to feel guilty about. However, I will caveat that by saying when I try to eat with the seasons, my physical and mental health, you know, anecdotally, I feel so much better. One, because eating seasonally is how we used to eat. You know, our grandparents would have eaten seasonally and it's it's connecting to nature. So on a mental health level, and I know so many people who have come out of the awfulness and tragedy of the pandemic saying they, they feel closer to nature because they've walked more, they've rested more, they've listened to their bodies more. But eating seasonally is also 
most of the time more affordable because we're eating food when it's, it's most abundant. I also think, um, you know, we're in a climate catastrophe, as we well know. And the farmers, our farmers are the caretakers of the land and farmers like to grow seasonally. They like to grow with nature. And so I think by trying to eat seasonally, we're also supporting them. We're also supporting the impact they have on the land. And that is going to be a good thing for the environment. But, you know, it can be really simple. So as an example, it's strawberry season. So I'm going nuts for fresh strawberries, as I'm sure lots of us are. But when strawberry season is over, when the autumn comes, I'll buy frozen strawberries. You know, that's my little thing to do that feels better um, rather than strawberries being shipped from across the world. I think that's really important. And same with asparagus. Do you like asparagus? Yes, I do. And you're right. I mean, it kind of lends itself to how you feel in the season. So in the hotter weather, we're preferring salads and, you know, that kind of crisp feeling. Whereas when it comes into the winter, we're looking for that wholesome root veg roasted feeling oh, and 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 oh, that's what you're yes. kind of leaning into as opposed to as you say beating yourself over the back for trying to sort the world yeah. out exactly yeah we can't we can't sort the world out with one plate but at the same time overall if um you know I'm a big fan of sort of mid-year resolutions you know rather than them just being January we've just had the summer equinox we've had the longest day of the year we are moving into the height of summer lots of us have got kids it's like oh who's looking after the kids can we get on summer holidays will the plane take off you know there's there's so much to think about so I think the main thing is when when we're thinking ahead maybe now to now or that sorry to bring up the back to school feeling when most people are breaking up but maybe in the September when you're back at home, you you think about and say, you know what, I actually really love um, that feeling of back to school. And as you say, all those root veg, the hearty, wholesome foods, maybe I'm going to really try and discover a new root veg. Maybe I'm going to fall in love with Swede this year. <laughs> and the Irish do their, their soups and their stews so beautifully. You're the absolute royalty of that area. Um I spent, you know, I've really enjoyed going to Ballymaloo and eat and in the summer and in the winter. And I just think, you know, in the autumn, winter, I think especially it's easier to batch cook. It really lends itself to that. So I enjoy that. I enjoy that difference. I don't want to eat a tasteless tomato in the winter. I'd rather wait for it, really enjoy it in the summer. Same with asparagus, same with berries. And I look forward to squash in the winter. By March, I'm very bored of squash and turnips. <laughs> Kale and Brussels sprouts. (laughs) And ready for the summer. And what's a term you use in the book? Flexible cooking. What does that mean? Um, It can mean many, many things. To me, uh, being flexible means, again, it's coming back massively to guilt and stress. If you can't find an ingredient, don't stress about it. Be flexible. In every recipe in the book, I offer tips and variations. So if you can't find a sweet potato, say, for the um, for the fish cakes, swap in your potato. If you can't find kale, swap it for some cavolo nero. If you can't find uh, fennel, swap it for some celery. And that's the reality of how we cook. Food becomes um, readily available and less available. So I think if lots of people say to me, if they're thinking about making dinner, they go to a recipe book, there's 15 ingredients, they get a little bit deflated, they then realise they can't get one ingredient, they think, oh, I just won't bother, I'll get a ready meal or a takeaway. But we, you don't need to do that. Chefs, me, recipe books, we're not we're not the boss of you. <laughs> it's your dinner. 
you make it with what you've got available. And actually, I think that's very empowering when you change up a recipe. My favorite thing is when someone says to me, I love your recipe, but I changed 20% of it. It's now their recipe. It's not my recipe anymore. It's yours. Go for it. That is, that's a wonderful feeling for me. Yeah. And that's what I love about a self-taught chef, that you have just experimented and tried and changed it up and, and evolved as you've gone along and, 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 and learned that way. And I think that's inspiration for all of us, that we can all become that in our own kitchens. Absolutely. And the difference is I do a lot of charity cooking classes. People walk in and that you can see their shoulders are a bit slumped. They're a bit nervous. They don't feel like confident cooks. They feel a little bit annoyed that one of life's great pleasures of cooking has passed them by. You know, they'll say in their own words, oh, I'm just not a good cook. I'm useless at that. And then we start cooking and everybody realizes they're much better than they think they are because cooking a meal for yourself is one of the best things you can do to connect to yourself and offer to yourself. And it is as simple as chopping. You don't need to find dice. Roughly chop something, put it in the oven, put it in the pot, give it a stir. You know, when you really break it down, you put it onto your plate, you put some spices, some herbs, maybe a little bit of feta cheese or a beautiful local cheese. That is your dinner. You know, look to us chefs for guidance and maybe tips on waste-free cooking, but you can do it. I see people's shoulders pull back, their heads held high, and they're like, oh my gosh, I've cooked this incredible meal. I can't believe it. They go from from worried human to master chef in one meal. And it is wonderful to see. And I think that cooking kitchen confidence is so contagious. And I really wish we could, I really wish our governments would spend more time on that. We know that good nutrition really supports childhood obesity, which is on the rise, adult obesity, all sorts of issues that we we face as a nation. And we can really just go back to basics, back to the plate, back to the kitchen. It's We can do it. We, yeah. we don't need to worry. We can start right now. I totally agree with you. I think this emphasis on eat less, move more just loses people. And we all say, oh, I can't do that. Whereas talking about nourishment, enjoyment, bit of confidence in the kitchen gives a healthy relationship with the food and your body, which is the better starting point for sure. So just to further emphasise the point, even though I hate all that, what I eat in a day, carry on that you see across social media but give us a typical day for you what you'd grab for yourself in the morning lunch and dinner oh yeah okay well let's let's take okay I'll take today for example and I'll tell you what I'm gonna have for dinner tonight today I had some oh here we go some smash like I had some berries that were going soft so I while I boiled the kettle for my tea I simmered them for about two two minutes, literally till they broke down. I added a little bit of cinnamon, which I love because cinnamon makes things, it brings out the sweetness and it's a fantastic spice for our health. I served that with like lovely full fat Greek yogurt and I threw in some leftover granola. I actually had, you know, when you have like ends of packets of granola and muesli, I sort of was f- chucking in ends of packets and that was a pretty two minute breakfast for me. I don't always have that. Sometimes I have eggs, but I didn't today because next, um, after we finish, I will be preparing a frittata. I've got some mushrooms that said expired two days ago on the packet. They are more than fantastic. I'm going to fry them up. I'm going to crack in some eggs. I've got some leftover new potatoes that are cooked. I'll, I'll slice them up. So basically I've got a little mushroom potato sort of fat omelette, but you know, I call it a frittata. And any greens I've got in the fridge, like leftover salad greens, watercress, rocket, 
whatever I can see, I'll chuck in as well. And then I'll throw it under the grill and it will set. And actually it tastes even better warm. And I'll have a big slice of that for lunch. And then tomorrow I'm out and about. So I'll have a big wedge of that in my bag and I'll take that with me. Um, for dinner, I've got a veg box coming, which um, actually my veg box did some research. They're about 30% cheaper than organic in the supermarkets. So that's really great. It's an organic um, veg farm down in Devon, South England. And I'll see, I'll literally cook dinner based on what comes in. I'll probably roast a bunch of veggies, whatever's there, and then have it with, mm, I don't know what else I've got in the freezer. I tend to keep my meat and fish in the freezer when I'm busy so that I don't have to worry about things going off because unfortunately food waste research shows that an awful lot of animal products get thrown away because people do one weekly shop because we're so time poor and then they get worried when they see the expiry date and they bin it so something like that and then uh yeah I sort of try and make sure I've got some fruit loads of veg some nuts and seeds during my day I might grab a handful uh and another thing I love to do, sorry, on the breakfast front, in the book, I've got these breakfast muffins, which I hope you'll have a go at. And they rely on ripe mashed bananas. So when your bananas get soft, mash them up. I grate carrot in there. I grate apple. And I have it with lots of nuts and seeds. And then I make a batch and I freeze it. So whenever I'm on a grab and go morning, that's what I do. And you can eat them any time of day. Well, I just think your enthusiasm for food is absolutely infectious and we can hear you are brimming with it and with energy, which comes right back to your plate. And that's where it starts. The book is called Feel Good, Quick and Easy Recipes for Comfort and Joy. I am inspired, Melissa. I have your book (laughs) and I plan on bringing it into my kitchen. Melissa Hemsley, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey, to Simon Keane and Jojo Cordoza who was on sound and thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.